All right, my name is Scott Jarvis, and I'm the preaching minister at the Garden Ridge Church of Christ in, in uh, Louisville, Texas. And I've been there 11 years and uh, have enjoyed my work immensely there. Um, one of my passions is personal Bible studies, and, uh, and one of the things that I oftentimes run across is a lot of guilt and a lot of shame. Um, a lot of uh, people who've been beat up even by the church and uh, concepts of how wrathful God is and, and all of that. So, uh, so this lesson is coming out of, uh, a lot of a lot of that, a lot of what I've had experience with uh, dealing with in personal Bible studies and, and trying to lead people through uh, understanding the loving nature of our God. Uh, this is not a class that is uh, on universalism. In other words, it is not to say all roads lead to you being okay and you'll wind up in heaven. Uh, you will see this class is very definitely focused on uh, Jesus being that one way towards that. But uh, uh, hopefully you will see that uh, our God has uh, gotten a bum rap with all the hellfire and damnation kind of uh, sermons that used to be done much more prevalent in the past. And uh, so... So I want to do what I want to do this uh, this afternoon is is just go from Old Testament to New Testament and show you uh, the true story of what God has throughout history been trying to show us about His nature, the loving the loving kindness in His nature. So I thought a good way to do that. Let's start with a song. Uh, I hope it's a song you know. It's pretty old, so you, you should know it. It comes straight out of Scripture. So so if you don't know it, don't admit that you don't know it. Okay. <laughs> The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in him. Therefore I will hope in Him. All right, now, that song, if you know where it comes from, it's, it's out of Lamentations chapter 3. If you know the story of Lamentations, uh, this is Israel at absolutely the lowest. Uh, this is Israel in exile. And the, the, the Lamentations are songs of woe. They're uh, basically death oracles. And uh, it is the story of Israel being caught up in worshiping other gods and being punished because of the path that they've taken. In it, you have all kinds of horrific pictures of what's going on. They are literally starving to death in Jerusalem as the Babylonian army has the city under siege. And, uh, I mean, and in the Lamentations, it talks about these horrific things that are going on. No food, uh, women cooking and eating their own children, eating their afterbirth. I mean, it's just, it's just horrific, horrific, horrific stuff that's going on. And it's all, again, as a result of 
we had a God, we had a covenant with that God, we were supposed to follow that God, and for some reason, we allowed other things to distract us, lead us away, and we sold out our covenant to that God. And he told us, he warned us ahead of time what would happen if we didn't stay true to that covenant, and this is part of what God had said would happen. And they're being punished the way God said they would be punished. But right in the middle of the Lamentations, right in the middle of chapter 3, which is there's five Lamentations. So this is right at the heart of Lamentations. You come across these verses. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Right? And he's just talking about the mercies of God. And, and I'll wake up in the morning with new hope. There, there's a God that even when I'm living in the most horrific thing that I brought on myself, that I did in my own life, there is a God who says, I am not going to give up on you. I will not fail you. Don't fail yourself. Right? And, and, uh, and so that's part of the issue that is at place here. Because uh, what I want you to see today is what Satan is trying to do to you. And that is to put you in complete bondage. That is to make you wear chains and believe things that aren't true things that weigh you down and things that hinder your movement your freedom in what god has created you to be and to do and these chains unfortunately uh well most of the time we just put them on ourselves. listening to what our flesh desires listening to what the world is telling us is important and gives life to the fullest and uh and we buy into that because it sounds good, it feels good, it seems good. From our limited perspective, it has to be good. And we get trapped, we get caught in those things. Now, I want you to imagine if uh, you were a slave living back in the 1850s and uh, you had been set free, but you didn't know it because you were living on a plantation with a master who didn't want you to know it. He didn't want to lose you. He didn't want to lose what he had from you. Using you, abusing you, whatever it is, he didn't want to give that up. And so he just kept you ignorant and in shackles and not free. And you don't even matter. This is exactly the picture of what too often we accept in our lives with God. We, we allow Satan to influence us. We allow our personal choices, our flesh to influence us. And before you know it, we're caught up in these shackles. And unfortunately, as God tries as hard as he can to say, wait, wait, if you just knew how free you are, if you just knew that I've already proclaimed your freedom, I've already paid for this to be done, if you just knew what was done, you would not have to be in the situation you're in. Those shackles, you could remove them. You, you could get rid of them. You could be free. But so often, we listen to lies instead of the truth. So what I want to show you is, I want to show you history. History of God. We're going to go all the way to before the beginning of the world. And I'm just going to show you consistently. We're going to look at three main stories from the Old Testament. And then we're going to talk about how some authors in the New Testament took those stories and said, 
Yeah, let me show you what that means if you look at it through Jesus. And what you'll see is the wrath of God, or at least the supposed wrath of God, and then what happens in Christ. And you'll see what Satan wants to bind you in, this concept of condemnation, shame, guilt, you know, unworthiness, and what God is actually telling us and has been telling us throughout the whole story of Scripture. Okay? So, um, so when you're wearing these chains... Right? You, uh, you might see a statement like this. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1. Yeah, that sounds great, doesn't it? Do you believe that? I mean, with what I've done, really? No condemnation? I mean, there's been times where I blatantly have gone against what you want. I knew better. I knew and I've deliberately chosen and strayed. Really? There's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. That's a pretty powerful statement. All right? When you hear a statement like that, do you feel set free? Do you feel like your chains have been taken off of you? That God has told you, here's your emancipation proclamation, you do not belong to that slave master who's lying to you. You are, you are set free. Do you feel that? God wants you to see you've been tricked. You've been lied to. And uh, he wants you to understand what's going on here. Do you know who wrote this? A guy named Paul, right? Paul wrote this. Now think about Paul. Well, maybe, maybe you should think about him as Saul. right? That guy wrote these words. The guy that in other books that he writes says things like, I'm the chief of sinners. I'm a blasphemer and a persecutor against the church. Right? That guy is the same guy that wrote these words right here. That guy that went out of his way to try to destroy what was known as the way at that time. He's the same guy that writes this. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. He was really trying to emphasize the aspect of what we have in Jesus, but what he was really trying to get at is, you know what, for a long time in my own life, I bought those lies. For a long time in my own life, I I didn't understand. I looked at things from the wrong perspective and I didn't hear what God was really saying. Paul was so learned in the scriptures that that's why his writings are so deep and so sometimes frustrating because of how challenging they are. He'll take a passage from the Old Testament and he'll just, you know, use it in a way that you go, where'd you come up with that interpretation? But he was so learned in things that once the... Once the scales fell from his eyes, right? Once on the road to Damascus, he's blinded, and then he spends three days, and Ananias comes to him and lays hands on him, and the scales fall from his eyes. Now he begins seeing, oh, that's what those stories meant. Oh, that's what you meant when this happened in our history. So let me take you back to some of that history, right? We'll start with the first man and woman. When, uh, 
When God created them, he gave them everything they needed. That's, in essence, what chapter 2 of Genesis is about. Okay, I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but Genesis 1 tells the story of creation from a perspective of demonstrating God as the one who can fix the mess, take the chaos, and turn it into something good. But at Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, you start a second account of creation. And in that second account, it's not about the God who's so powerful that he can speak and make things happen. All of a sudden, the story is very personal. It's a God who takes dust from the ground and molds it and shapes it and breathes life into it. That's not how it happened in chapter 1. He just spoke and mankind was formed. Chapter 2, very hands-on. And then once he creates man, he starts creating everything man needs. A garden for shelter, trees that provide the food that they need, water in the garden for every basic need that they would need to live. That's what chapter 2 deals with. You can just go back and read Genesis 2 and see every basic need you would have to have or you would die, it's all covered in Genesis 2. And the point of Genesis 2 is God was saying, I created you, I know you, I made what I'm going to make it for you what you need. I'm going to provide everything you need. I'm the God who loves you. In chapter 1, I'm the God who's in complete control. I'm the all-powerful, speak into it, take the chaos, turn it into something great. But in chapter 2, I am the loving God who cares about you, who wants to provide and protect you. What's your covenant things? It's what a parent does for a child, right? Those are covenant things. And, and that's what we see happening in Genesis chapter 2. But you know what happens, right? He gives them one rule, and they, of course, have to violate that rule. And they go against what he says. They fall. They eat the fruit they're not supposed to. There was punishment that comes with that. You eat the fruit, you die, right? But I want you to see something real interesting. If you go through that story in Genesis 3 and you take note of his response to their rebellion, okay? You know, they start pointing fingers. The woman did it. The woman you gave me. It's their, your fault or her fault, right? And then she's like, the serpent. She's pointing her fingers. The serpent. And the serpent doesn't have any fingers, so he didn't get the point. And God immediately starts bringing punishment. Punishment on the serpent where he's cursed which that curse remains forever. If you read Isaiah, you see that in Isaiah 61, beautiful account right at the end of Isaiah 61, everything is in harmony with everything else. You know, the lions and the lambs are there together and, and, and the kids are playing with vipers and it's all okay, right? But the one thing that doesn't change in Isaiah 61 is the serpent is still eating the dust. His curse is eternal. But... But the thing is, for man and woman, he starts giving punishment and the, punishes the serpent, makes him crawl on his belly, tells him, you know, you think you've caused problems, but uh, ultimately you're going to lose. You're going to strike the heel, but you're going to get your head crushed, pointing towards Jesus. Okay, but then he starts punishing the woman and the man. Okay, ladies, what's he punish the woman with? Did, was it effective? I mean... Yeah? Okay. So you're in the middle of this moment where you could be incredibly full of yourself. I'm bringing life into the world. Right? And God makes it a moment where you go, 
I need help bringing life into the world. Right? He turns their eyes, her eyes in this case, because he's punishing her, her eyes, he turns them back to him. And if you look at Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, that's the very thing that happens. She has a child, and she says, Genesis 4, 1, I had a child with the help of the Lord. The punishment worked. It called her back to him and called her to a relationship of restoration, at least working towards restoration with him. For the man, it was... Hardship and work, right? From now on, you don't just throw the seed out there. Wow, look at that. This garden's incredible. You're going to have to work sweat of your brow. And ultimately, from dust you came to dust you're going to return, right? He's, man, okay, so I'm out there farming and uh, I'm not getting the rain I need or the bugs are eating my crops or where am I going to turn? Hopefully back to God, right? which is the point of the punishment, to call mankind back to him. Now, here's the real interesting thing, though. He punishes them. He just gets finished. The very last thing he said is they came from dust to dust they're going to return. And the next thing he says is this. This is the very next verse after the punishment of serpent, woman, and man. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. Do you know what Eve means? Yeah, it means this right here, <laughs> living. That's a little ironic, don't you think, considering he told them when you eat the fruit, you're going to die. And the very next verse, after he gives them their punishment to call them back, is a verse that tells us, oh, by the way, we hadn't told you her name yet. Her name is living. What's God focusing on? The future. Right? He's focusing on the future. Hey, I'm going to take this story and I'm going to put it in Jesus. And when I put it in Jesus, all of a sudden, everything is going to change. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. They got kicked out of the garden so they wouldn't eat from the tree of life. But if you scroll all the way through your Bible and you get to the last chapter of the last book of the Bible, you get to Revelation 22, and there's this picture there of the new Jerusalem, heaven. Guess what's that new Jerusalem in heaven? The tree of life. He kicks them away from the garden once they sin. He brings them back to the tree of life once Jesus' blood washes away our sin. The whole story of Scripture is a story of a God who says, if you don't give up on me, I will never give up on you. If you give up on me, you're actually just giving up on yourself because I will not give up on you. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That's how the Bible begins and ends. Everything in between tells the same story, but that's how it begins and ends. Hey, here's the God I am. I'm the God who wants you to know you're living. Now, the reason for that is, as Paul would say, he decides, okay, I'm going to take that story that God talked about, and I'm going to put it in Jesus, and I'm going to actually trump what you see in Genesis, I'm going to go before that. So blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Any spiritual blessing you're lacking? 
Every spiritual blessing he's given us. Okay? You're not lacking. Now, Genesis 2 was about all the physical things we needed in order to live. And he put them in the garden and provided everything. But Paul said it wasn't just the physical that he took care of. It was also the spiritual. And he goes on to say this. Just as he chose us in him, him being Jesus, before the foundation, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. Paul says, even before he started this whole idea, he already had a plan to choose you in Christ to be holy and blameless, to stand before him and be okay. Now, what he says next is, in love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. Now, this is interesting, right? He predestined us. Understand, he didn't predestine your decision. He predestined that you have a decision. There's these paths, and one leads to rebellion, and one leads back to life. He predestined that you would have a path that leads back to life. In him, you can be holy and blameless. He didn't predestine whether you would walk that path or not. You still have to make that decision. But he predestined that you could walk that path even before he created anything. And, uh, and what he says here is, according to the kind intention of his will. If he has his way, everybody would be saved. The problem is he gave us free will. And I don't have to live according to his will. His will would be great if I only understood that and had the faith to walk in that. My will gets in the way. My will causes me to put those chains back on. My will gets me to believe that I've messed up so bad I'm not worthy. My will gets in the way of seeing life through Jesus. So that's the first story. From Old Testament to New Testament, I just wanted you to see how all this plays out here where God has a plan and, and overall he just keeps trying to say, hey, here's who I really am. I'm the God that loves you. I'm the God with a plan for you. I'm the God that has provided everything you need so that you need never to be separated from me. That's the God I am. And the devil keeps taking that and getting us to buy into half-truths, full-out lies, you know, whatever it is, and accept things that don't fit with what God is trying to say in these things right here. Kind of sad, isn't it? Because how many in the world don't understand this? How many have been so damaged, even by church, that they don't understand this? Or they feel so unworthy from the baggage they're carrying, the chains that they have on, they feel so unworthy, they don't feel there's any hope. There's no help for me. They give up on themselves. And certainly on a God who all they've ever heard is, well, he's just waiting to judge you. He's just watching you so he, when you fall, he'll be there. Oh, he'll be there. And you're not going to like it. That's not what the Bible says. So, point, story number two. See, as God continues working with mankind, you come across this guy named Noah. Um, Noah had to face a pretty severe storm. Uh, God loves to talk about storms. You know, he loves being the image of, of the one, the safety in the storm. Even Jesus, as he 
uh, gave the Sermon on the Mount. He finished it talking about the wise man who builds his house on a rock and the foolish man who builds his house on the sand, right? The wise man, if you look at it in Matthew 7, is the one who hears the words that Jesus was speaking and puts them into practice. And the foolish man is the one who hears the words that Jesus is teaching and doesn't put them into practice. Okay? Wise man, foolish man. What's interesting is, if you go look at Matthew 7, those verses 24 through 27, if you go look at those verses, word for word, whether you're wise or foolish, you face the very same storm. Word for word. The difference isn't, oh, I built my life listening to Jesus. I don't have to face those storms. No, I built my life because of, on Jesus, and when I face those storms, he tells me I'm going to stand. That's the difference. Now, Noah, Noah had to face storms, right? Noah had to face this, this huge storm. And, uh, and so, basically, he acted on what God told him, and he lived through God's judgment, right? Now, here's one of those places, right? What do you mean? The wrath of God, of course. Look at the story of the flood. You've got this incredible picture of the wrath of God and him just bringing judgment on us. Okay, well, let's unpack that story a little bit, right? God comes to Noah and he says, uh, Hey, Noah, um, your world's messed up. In fact, in Genesis 6, verse 6, we're told every thought of man was only evil continually. That's a pretty messed up place. Our world has a lot of trouble in it. I would not say that every thought of man is only evil continually. Okay, but that's how it's described in Genesis during the time of Noah. So God tells Noah, here's what I want you to do. Go out there and build this big ark, and then the animals will come to you. You gather the food and get it all together. It takes him 100 years to do this. God waits for that to happen, and then he brings the storm. Now, I don't have time to give you the whole background on this, but there's even more entailed in that. For 969 years, God was warning them of what was coming through a guy named Enoch. And then a guy named Lamech, who ultimately had a son named Noah. And they all had prophecy that they say in the genealogy that's given there. They all have prophecy that leads to an understanding of, wait, hey, God's warning us about something. God's warning us about something. Okay, so you see this flood come and, well, that seems like wrath of God stuff to me. The whole world except Noah and his family die. So let's look at it through the eyes or the lens of uh, Jesus, and let's see what some people in the New Testament have to say about it. First Peter, Peter says this, When God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built, in it only a few people, eight in all, were saved through the water. Wait, saved through the water? You ever read the flood story as a salvation event? Hey, God brought the flood and it was salvation! That's what Peter's saying. There were eight people that were saved through the water. Now, there was a whole rest of the world that were lost through the water. Okay? But Peter says, before you just jump on the wrath of God aspect of things, let's, um, let's take a look at what uh, is, is going on here. He says, and this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So here's a curious question. 
Peter says, hey, remember that story about Noah and everybody looks at it as this horrific wrath of God judgment event? Yeah, it really had another side of the coin to it. It was a salvation event. And, uh, and God's using that very same thing to save you today. The water actually saved them. And corresponding to that, baptism, the water saves you too. How does it save you? Not the removal of dirt from the flesh or the body, but an appeal to God for a good conscience. The ability to stand before God with... Oh, wait. How do you stand before God with a good conscience? Only through Christ. Only if you have no sin. Right? Through Christ. That's exactly right, right? What were you going to say? The Holy Spirit intercedes for you. Okay. Right. Through this act of what God has provided, right? But by looking through the lens of Jesus... Right? All of a sudden, the flood event isn't a judgment wrath event. It's a salvation event. God washed the world clean and gave mankind a fresh start. Every thought of man was evil continually. Let that sink in. And God said, you can't live in a world like that. So he washed the world clean and said, let's try this again. Let's start over. Noah, you're a righteous man, blameless in your time. That's how he's described in Genesis 6, verse 9. I'll start with you and your family. We'll wash the world clean and we'll give you the opportunity to start fresh, start new. Peter says that's exactly what he does in Jesus. He washes you clean and gives you a fresh start. I can stand before God with a clear conscience because Everything I've done has been washed. Anything that would have put me outside of where God wants me to be, Jesus has paid the price for, and Jesus has brought me back. The, the Spirit has led that transformation to help me learn from those things and become something different, something kingdom-worthy. All of that has changed in Him. And so what we see is that the flood event is something where, well, Jesus would say it, uh, uh, Peter would say it this way. Hey, um, there's another storm that's coming, and you probably want to get on the ark. And the way you spell ark is J-E-S-U-S. -S. Jump on board. Right? And he will warn in his next book of another storm that will come, that will appear to be wrath, but it's only to those who are not in Christ. And it's only those who just absolutely refuse to submit themselves to the will of God. Well, in Romans 14, 4, it says, Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand upon, and they will stand for the Lord is able to make them stand. That's right. So once we become a servant of Jesus, he will make us stand. We don't stand through our own power. Exactly. Right? I mean, that's, that's what I need the Spirit for. He's the power I don't have. He's the wisdom I don't have. He's the perspective I don't have. Right? He, that's exactly why we need that indwelling of the Spirit in things. So that, that's right on point. Okay? So let me go to the third story here. Um, you remember a guy named Moses? Yeah, right? So Moses was given this incredible task. I just want you to go to the most powerful kingdom there is, and uh, I want you to go tell him all that slave labor that you're using right now, I want you to let him go. 
Just wreck your economy, Pharaoh. It's going to be just great. Just, just let him go. And uh, Moses, you know, Exodus chapter 3, you know, he's asking those questions. Well, who am I to do that, God? And what if they won't believe me? And who do I say sent me? And, and uh, God, you know, uh, um, I don't know. You know, I'm not very eloquent. And God's not giving him an out. God sends him on this task and, and, and tells him to get this taken care of, right? And so Moses goes with the power of God. He is able to bring Israel out of Egypt, okay? And so they're on their way out of Egypt, and they get to the Red Sea. You know what happens there, right? God demonstrates one last time, Pharaoh, you're not deity. Pharaoh, you're not in control. And Pharaoh, I'm going to pay you back for what you've done to my firstborn. And so he drowns the army of Pharaoh, just as Pharaoh drowned the children of Israel. And, uh, and he brings on them the last plague, the death of the firstborn, just as Pharaoh brought death to God's firstborn. That's how he refers to them in Exodus chapter 4, his firstborn. And so basically God says, you know, Pharaoh, I'm going to let you, let you reap what you sow. Now Israel is free. Now, hey, now Israel is free. We're not slaves anymore. We're free. Right? And so they're out in the wilderness and they're traveling to the promised land. The only problem is they're not really going to the promised land. The direction that God's leading them, he's leading with a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud. He's leading them to Mount Sinai, which happens to be in almost the opposite direction of the promised land. And they're wandering through the wilderness and they start getting hungry and they start getting thirsty and um, they start complaining about things, right? Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin. According to the command of the Lord, they camped at Rephidim. There was no water for the people to drink. Now, if you've done any vacation time with your children and they're in the backseat of your car, right? How long does it take before they start griping and complaining, hungry, thirsty, bathroom, they're touching me, you know, whatever it is, right? How long does that take? Well, it doesn't take Israel very long. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses. Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said, why do you quarrel with me? Why? Why do you test the Lord? A little bit later in that same passage, he named the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel. Because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? So they named the place Quarrel and Testing. That's what Masa and Meribah mean. Quarrel and Testing, they named the place because of what happens there. Is God among us or not? Is he among us? You remember what God did here? What was his, what was his reaction to their complaining? Provides. Yeah, what did he provide? Yeah. Well, in this case, they're thirsty. Oh, yes, sorry. That's all right. So in this case, he does provide manna, okay, that's chapter 16, but chapter 17, he provides water from a rock, right? Hey, Moses, take that staff, go over there, strike the rock, and uh, water will come forth. Now think about this. You're talking a million Israelites, maybe, and all their livestock? It's not like it would be a drinking fountain, right? Okay, everybody line up. It had to be a gusher. I mean, it had to be a geyser, just... You know, water just coming forth so everybody has what they need. Moses, go over there and strike that rock, and uh, out it comes. 
So Moses does that, right? He goes and he strikes the rock. Now, let's look at this through the lens of Jesus, right? So, um, so Moses is given this task, and he goes over there, and God provides for their thirst in the midst of a barren land. God provides for them from a rock that provides living water, right? And so uh, in John 4, Jesus is at the well. He's with a woman that's thirsty in more ways than she understands. She's wearing shackles of shame and guilt, showing up in the heat of the day to get her water because she doesn't like the stares and the whispers and maybe even the full-on taunts that she gets from uh, the people around her. And so Jesus is there to say, you don't need to wear those shackles anymore. Uh, if you knew who it was that asked you for a drink, you would have asked me, and I'd give you living water. This is what he wants to provide, that living water. Jesus said, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water I shall give him will never thirst well, this is exactly what was going on in Exodus 17. There's a rock, and it provides the water of life. And God was already pointing to, I'll provide what you need. I will take care. As you go through this life, and you're in this wilderness, and it feels like there's too many struggles, too much oppression, too much junk going on, I'm there. I know what you need, and I want to love you and provide for you. Same thing we saw in Genesis 2. I will take care of your need. Strike the rock, Moses, and water will come forth. And so Moses strikes the rock, and they learn this incredible lesson, right? They learn this great lesson, right? They really learn this lesson, right? Yeah, there's a lot of complaining and stuff. In fact, if you look at the book of Numbers... Right? There is an account, oh, okay, book of Numbers, there is an account very parallel to what takes place in Exodus. This is the account when they're leaving Mount Sinai. Between, between Exodus 17 and Numbers chapter 20, about a year has gone by. They got to Mount Sinai. God gave them the law. They built the tabernacle. They established the priesthood. They set up their government with God as their king. Right? All this takes place at Mount Sinai. Now they're leaving Mount Sinai. Numbers chapter 10, they leave Mount Sinai. In Numbers chapter 20, they're in the wilderness, and lo and behold, they're thirsty. Right? So God tells Moses, hey, take your rod, you and your brother Aaron, assemble the congregation, and speak to the rock before their eyes that it may yield its water. So, uh, so of course, Moses goes over and obeys God fully, right? God is going to bring water from a rock. Only this time he says, speak to the rock. What's the big deal? Moses gets the people there. Hey, you rebels, do I have to bring forth water for you? Bam, bam, he strikes the rock twice, and water gushes out of it. I'm not certain I understand why God caused the water to come out of it when he was so upset. But he did, which ought to tell us something, right? They have a need. You didn't do exactly what I said, but I'm still going to take care of their need. And water comes out. Curious. Speak to the rock. Huh. 
Moses doesn't. So God says this to Moses. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you've not believed me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Ah. That seems a bit rough, doesn't it? Now we're seeing the wrath of God, right? Here's that judgment we've been talking about all along. How wrathful God is. Okay, Moses, I told you to speak. You struck. And so no promised land for you. Right. There's that God I've been told about. That wrathful judging God. Now, let me get a few things clear here. Again, if you look at all of this through the lens of Jesus, all of a sudden, every piece in this story starts to make a lot more sense. We're out in the wilderness in Exodus, and God says, go strike the rock, water will come forth. Yeah, you know what? That's exactly how it's going to happen. Go take that rock and strike that rock, and he will provide living water for you. And until the rock was struck, there wasn't the living water. But here's God's other point. Once you struck the rock, I'm not going to let you strike the rock again. Now you speak to the rock. See, we already struck the rock. That took care of the living water. Now you speak to the rock. Okay? And this is, this is what God has been saying all along. Everything in my word points to what I want for you. No condemnation. Life eternal. Life abundant in Christ. And uh, you're thirsty, you're out there in the wilderness, and you're thirsty, you're wearing these shackles. Hey, you don't have to be. I've been telling you this story all along. Strike the rock, that's already been done. That has been taken care of. Jesus was struck, and we now have the living water. So now it's our task to speak humbly, reverently, appreciatively, out of gratitude to the rock who provides what we need. Right? God's been telling this story. He's been telling this story over and over and over again. Now, um, let's go back to that part, though, that, I mean, Moses wasn't allowed to enter the promised land. Doesn't that seem a bit harsh? He has a bad moment, right? He gets angry at what's going on. You know, maybe it's frustration. Maybe it's fear because the people had talked of stoning him. Out of his fear and his frustration, he has a moment, a weakness, and he strikes the rock instead of speaking to the... Doesn't that still seem a little harsh? No promised land for you, Moses. If you're Moses, would you be sitting over there going, man, I, I think I got a raw deal here, God. It was one moment. I feel like he was looking, okay, instead of the mob, because he had already used it to open the sea. And so if I was a person and someone had a magic stick, I would be like, beat the rock, dude. Like, <laughs> we need water. And so peer pressure, I don't know, back in the day. Okay. Use your stick. <laughs> It worked last time. Yeah, I know. Yeah. It worked last time. Yeah. Okay. But, I mean, still, wouldn't that strike you as, I mean, give me another punishment. Give me pain during childbirth. I mean, whatever. <laughs> right? <laughs> uh. I, don't, I don't know if 
maybe it's just me, but it almost seems to me that the promised land is not what he has now found to, to be his joy. It, the presence of God is what he's wanted, and he has that. Okay. And, and to me, it's, it's like anything else. We may be frustrated when the plans don't work out the way we want, but presence of God is still with us. What, why does anything else matter? I completely agree with you, Cody. I completely agree with what you're saying. The presence of God is what he is always seeking for us to desire more, more than anything else, right? But the promised land represents a people who are given the inheritance to dwell with God, right? Yeah, I get that. So, so in a sense, right, that is what the promised land is about. You're going to come to this land and be my people, and I'm going to be your God, and we're going to build this tabernacle which later will be a temple so my presence is in your very midst right so there's a sense that all of that is very true let me show you okay we looked at the old testament side of it let's go to the new testament side of it all right this is matthew 17 jesus uh six days later took with him peter james and john his brother and led them on a high mountain by themselves he was transfigured before them Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him, and his face shone like the sun, his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with them. Where's Jesus in this scene? He's on a mountain that's in the promised land. Where's Moses? There. Huh. Yeah. Go figure. Moses made it to the promised land. Right? This is the thing. The devil loves to take these stories, these Old Testament stories that seem so full of wrath, so full of, of anger, and, and he loves to twist them just a little bit so that we go, yeah, yeah, that's in the Bible. Of course, that's what happened. Yes, that's the fact. And, and make us believe that it is a story of how easily I could lose my salvation, how, how desperately I have to get every point right with God, or I'm going to miss out. And God says, yeah, you got to read the whole story. you got to go from the introduction to the prologue, right? you gotta, you got to wait and see. I, I've been telling you this plan all along, but look, my, my desire is for you to experience life. My presence, exactly what Cody was saying, my presence with you always. That's what I've planned on. Right? I find it interesting that, you know, Jesus takes Peter on the mountain with him. Right? Chapter 16, the chapter right before this is where he asks them, Hey, who do people say that I am? And Peter goes, You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus is like, Wow, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. That came from the Father. Right? And he's all being built up and, and encouraged. Right? And the very next moment, Jesus starts saying, Okay, now that you know who I am, let me tell you what's about to happen. I'm going to Jerusalem, and they're going to take me, and they're going to kill me. And, and three days later, I'm going to rise from the dead. And Peter, he hears the killing part. No way! No way are we going to let that happen to you and rebukes Jesus. And Jesus basically has to come back and rebuke him and say, get behind me, Satan. You're not thinking, you know, for a moment there, you only, you were listening to what God says and then your flesh jumped in there and whew, we got caught up in. So Jesus has to rebuke him, right? 
Hey, Peter, if the rock doesn't get struck, there's no living water. So get behind me, Satan. If the rock doesn't get struck, we don't have the plan of God. This is going to happen. I'm going to Jerusalem, and it's already been shown what's going to happen. I'm going to be struck. And then Peter's on the mountain, and he's the one. He gets totally enamored. Wow, Moses and Elijah are here. Let's build tabernacles for him. And he has to be rebuked again. Hey, Peter, this is Jesus, my son. Listen to him. Listen to him. Moses, Elijah, that's great. We're glad they're here. Glad you think there's something powerful and wonderful in them, but they're not the story. Jesus is the story, right? He's the lens. We're not talking about all paths that lead us to. We're talking about one path that leads us to this right place with God where there's no condemnation. And that name, that path is Jesus. And God's been telling that story and telling that story and telling that story over and over and over and over again. So, so we come back to this. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Those words have some pretty powerful significance. Paul, Saul, who becomes Paul, who did lots of things that could have deserved the wrath of God. And yet he writes this story. I was doing a Bible study last week with a guy, uh, and... Um, well, I've been doing a Bible study with these two guys, and he, this one lives with a, an older man, and he said, Scott, is there any way you can come out here? It's about an hour drive. Any way you can come out here and have a Bible study with my friend Weldon? He's, uh, he's terminally ill. Sure, man, let's get it done. So I drove out there, and we do a Bible study, and I'm studying with Weldon. And Weldon is 68 and terminally ill, and in fact, he passed away the following Monday. So, but we're doing this Bible study together, and um, Weldon keeps telling me, I've known this, and I didn't do anything about it. So why would God take me now? Well, we could focus on your past and just worry, worry, worry about all the stuff you've done that make you unworthy, or we can look to what your future is in Christ and see, you could be in this place where there's no condemnation because you're in Christ. I read these words to him, and he was like, I, man, I would love that. And so he was, he was going to call his grandson to come and baptize him. I, I don't know whether that happened or not before he passed away. I know that was what he was going to do. I know... I know the guy that uh, talked to him, but, but I don't know. I don't know how that story wound up. But I'm looking at a God who over and over and over again is telling me there's one way, there's one way, that one way is in Jesus, and that way is for you to understand what it is that I'm doing for you. And I keep seeing a God who says, 
enter into that covenant with me, I completely believe in the necessity of baptism. But I also believe in a God who is so seeking to save us. I, I will not be surprised at all if Weldon's not standing in heaven. I will not be surprised at all. Now, if you're listening to this and you think I just said you don't need to be baptized, I, I don't believe that. I believe baptism is a covenant ceremony. I believe it is our circumcision where we remove the flesh and we live according to the, to the spirit. I believe it is the fulfillment of Abraham's covenant and we become the heirs of Abraham through our faith in Jesus Christ. And his promise is that to you, to you and your descendants, I will be your God and I become his descendant because of these things. So, so I am in no way trying to say, yeah, it doesn't matter if you're baptized or not. I'm just saying I believe in a God who, <laughs> he might not be necessarily restricted by all the things that I dot the I and cross the T just right to make sure I get it right. I believe in a God who knows the intention of my heart. I'm not going to fool him. Weldon's not going to fool him. Why am I telling you all that? Well, because this is, this is the real life kind of stuff that people need to be hearing. This is the message of hope that the gospel is really about. This is, this is the kind of thing that you're at work and somebody starts talking about, you know, the trouble, the struggle, the hard weekend they had or whatever. This is the kind of stuff that they need to hear. This is that message. Hey, you want to know about a life where whatever shackles, whatever chains you've been wearing, you don't have to wear those anymore? I can show you that. And I can show you consistently through the Bible how God has demonstrated that's the very God that he is. He'll take the shackles off and he will set you free. And he will lead you to a land where you dwell with him for eternity. And he will provide you with the tree of life. And he will give you the living water from the rock. And, and he will offer you the ark. And he will take care of all those things that you need so that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. One last thing I want you to know. I was talking to Weldon and he was talking about hell and, you know, whatever. And I said, Weldon, do you know that God never created hell for any human being? What? Hell was not created for us. It's in Matthew 25. Here, we flipped over to Matthew 25. We look at that last parable in Matthew 25 with the sheep and the goats, right? And he separates them and he tells the sheep, man, bless are you. Enter into my kingdom because I was thirsty. You gave me something to drink. I was hungry. You gave me something to eat. I was in prison. You came and visited me, right? On and on this list. And they go, when did we see that? When you did that to the least of my brothers, my brothers, you did that to me, right? And then he looks at the goats and he says, and you guys, you're accursed. And what's interesting is what he tells them is they're sent to a place that was prepared for the devil and his angels. He says it very clearly. This place of accursed being was created for the devil and his angels, not for us. That whole fear factor of hell, the only reason I would ever need to fear is if I follow the devil and wind up where the devil winds up. But if for some reason I open my eyes, I open my mind, I open my heart to see, and I especially open my soul to see 
wait a minute. I'm being sold a bill of goods. I'm being led by my chains. I'm being taught by a taskmaster, a slave owner, who doesn't want me to understand what I really have because he wants me to go down with him. And God says, or Jesus says in that parable, I didn't even create that place for you. You weren't even in my thoughts when I created that place. I created an eternal kingdom for you where there's life abundant. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What an awesome statement. Believe it, because the whole Bible teaches it. Let's pray. Father, I just want to say thank you for opportunity to share your word, to open these stories up and just to talk about what a great, loving, kind Father you are and how you've had a plan before there was even a world and how you have constantly sought to call us back to you. So help us to believe it, Father. Help us to get the scales removed from our eyes and for us to live with a hope and a passion like Saul, who became Paul, did. Father, help us to live with uh, an, an energy, a passion, a purpose, to share this good news with everybody that we can. And I just pray for blessings on each one that's here, Father. May they feel your presence and recognize your love and realize they have no reason to carry the chains and to be bound up anymore. You have offered us no condemnation. Thank you for loving us that much. It's in Jesus' name and through the power of your spirit we pray. Amen. 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 God bless you. Thank you for time.